Father, once again, we just come before you desiring deeply to hear from you. In some ways, Father, as we start a new series, we open up a new letter. We focus on the words that were written thousands of years ago. We could treat this as, well, some advice. But, Lord, the Bible is your holy, inspired word. The book of Ephesians is not just any book. It is an amazing book, a book that literally we could spend the rest of our days focusing on and digging out the truths that you're sharing with us. We pray that this study would be life-transforming, that it would not just be words, but that would be your word, and you would use it to change our hearts and our attitudes and our lives. We think of those folks who are downstairs right now, who are, who are also teaching and proclaiming your word to our little ones. I pray for Gary and Jill and Julia. I pray for Selena and Osana. I pray for Kylie and Addie and Joey. And for Jim and Claudia and Michelle. We pray, dear God, that as they relate your truths to our children, that their minds would be renewed and strengthened. God, we're excited to jump in here. We are excited to be able to learn more about who you are, our position in you, and what it means in our daily life. Would you teach us today, Father? Would your spirit be so unbelievably active that it would, well, prick our hearts in just the right way? We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited to start this study. I know that some of you, as we looked at the story for weeks and weeks and weeks, you were excited to hear and to know all about what the Bible has to say. But there is something about opening up one letter in one book, six chapters, where we go through verse by verse and hear from God what he has for us. There's some resources that I've used, and, and I just want to, again, uh, give these scholars proper, shall I say, accolades. These men, all of these men, have spent a lot of hours digging in and and helping me even navigate and understand a little bit better what Ephesians is saying to us today. It would be Dr. Swindoll, Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Wearsby, and one of our favorites who has spoken here, Gerald Peterman. All these folks have written some amazing commentaries, and I'm grateful. We believe here at this church that all Scripture is God-breathed. We believe that every word in the Bible is something that's important to us. But what I'd like to say at the beginning of this study, my personal favorite out of all the translations is the New Living Translation. 
I love the New Living Translation for its clarity and its accuracy. It is a translation, I think, that as you dig in, it will be easy for you to read and understand all that Paul is trying to share. Also, in the beginning of any study, and, and although we may have forgotten it and might not even use some of these fancy words, but we do a two-step hermeneutic. We do two things in order to interpret the Scriptures well so that we may be able to apply it to our lives. The first step is what does it mean to the original hearers? Paul wrote this letter to a certain group of people. What did it mean to them? And then once we understand that, we can ask the question, what does it mean to us 2,000 years later? And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and teaches us and refines us and convicts us and encourages us. We need to understand the book's context and genre and idioms and culture, all to be able to accurately understand God's Word. You don't need to go to seminary for that. You don't need to um, be some kind of a Bible scholar. But as you open up God's Word, you will learn how to ask some of these questions a little bit better. I always recommend a good study Bible. And perhaps there are so many online resources. And I'd be happy to meet with any of you and be able to set you up so that you might be able to be better equipped and encouraged to understand all that God's Word is. You see, I believe that understanding God's Word is part of making disciples who make disciples. We need to equip and we need to train. And God's Word will always be our textbook and the priority. God used Paul to pen this epistle. Epistle is a fancy word for just a letter. Paul was, re, was a renowned scholar and an enemy, actually, of Jesus when we first learn about him. Paul, whose original name was Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin and was probably named after Israel's first king and her most prominent Benjaminite. Saul was well-educated in what today we would call the humanities. But his most extensive training was in rabbinic studies under the famous Gamaliel. He became an outstanding rabbi in his own right and was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. Acts chapter 9 tells the grand story. On the way to Damascus, he met Jesus. And Paul's life was totally transformed. It would be odd because if you for just a moment took the place of God and looked over all of the people on the planet, my guess is, at least the way I would look at things, Paul would not rank up there. Paul was a scoundrel. Paul really, as much, as edu as much educated as he was, really didn't like Christians and thought that he should destroy them in the name of God. So for years he imprisoned and he arrested and he caused trouble for the church. 
on his way to Damascus, Jesus met him in a road. It was an unbelievable experience for Paul. He was blinded temporarily, and he spoke directly to Jesus. After a few months, he began to understand all that God was. You know, I had a privilege last Friday, just a few days ago, to go to a wedding. And I only knew one of the couple fairly well. But I knew this, is that Michelle was an unbelievably bright young lady. And yet she struggled in life. But somehow, just a few years back, God got a hold of her. Amazing transformation. All of her friends, all of the people that she hung around with, she began to talk about who Jesus is, about God's grace. Tears would fall. It was just beautiful. She met a guy named Colin. And they were married last Friday. And to be quite honest, I have not experienced a wedding like this for a long time. The grace that was extended, the gospel, the dependence they had on God, all that they understood. Their lives had been transformed by Jesus. And their future was unbelievably bright. Not because of their education or their background, or where they live, or their jobs, but because they both loved God in an amazing way. I was so grateful as I listened to Nate's message, when again he talked a little bit about Paul, and he shared that Paul, in spite of his great, well, background, all those things that he thought were important, they're not so important The most important thing was getting to know Jesus. Everything else seemed like garbage. Willie's message last week, again, focused on Paul in Acts 27. And and Paul was just in the midst of being a prisoner, overwhelmed by God's grace, God's messenger, and was able again to be able to share to some roughened sailors about his relationship with God. This guy's experience, his transformation was so real. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Well, it probably was a cyclical letter, which is a fancy word which just says this letter was probably intended to go to a few different churches in the area. The word in Ephesus in your Bibles, as you open up to Ephesians chapter 1, in those first two verses, really only shows up in the latter um, manuscripts. But most scholars, way smarter than I'll ever be, really believe that this letter was focused to the church primarily at Ephesus. So let's look at Ephesus. First the town, and then Paul's relationship to the town. As you saw in our introduction, Ephesus was the most important city of Western Asia Minor and a major center of political, economic, and religious activity. 
About 200,000 people lived in Ephesus at that time. To us then, it's probably not a big number. 2,000 years ago, there was a huge number. I was trying to even look in the United States and try to picture what city could be like Ephesus. Uh, maybe New York, no. Maybe Washington, no. And, and you start looking at, could it be L.A.? Could it be Chicago? Well, the truth was is that there's probably no city in the states that kind of look like Ephesus because of the political and economic and religious activity all combined here. It was quite an amazing place. In the political sphere, the proconsul of Asia conducted most of its affairs in Ephesus. In the economic area, Ephesus was the region's first port. It was where seafaring vessels would come in, and it was a strategic location for all the major trade areas in that, in, in that zone. This granted Ephesus a robust market and a large, diverse population. And lastly, in its religious life, the city boasted a grand temple dedicated to the fertility goddess Artemis. He is also known, or, or she's also known as Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Besides this, Ephesus had a rigorous imperial cult with several temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor. There was probably no place in Ephesus where a person could stand without falling under the shadow of that temple, either physically, spiritually, or economically. This was a very influential town. It was a powerful town. And it was a town, as we're going to find out, that God led Paul to, to have a special relationship and start an amazing church. Because from this town, the world would know about the good news. Now, Paul's relationship with Ephesus is pretty well documented. documented. Paul was passionate about the gospel. We know that. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul kind of blurts out how important the gospel is. And for some of you, you may not understand even what that word simply signifies, but but this is what Paul says in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes the Jew first, and also the Gentile. This good news or this gospel message tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul starts off this letter, and he just wants everyone to know, I love the gospel message. The gospel message that saves the Jew and the Gentile, that gives life. I love telling people how Jesus was crucified for me. Paul thought literally he was the worst sinner of all, and he could have been. But he couldn't believe that Jesus died for him. He was overwhelmed by the 
understanding that he shed his blood so that he might be redeemed or restored, or in this, that we could be made right with God. He knew he was separated in spite of how religious he was over and over and over again. It finally hit him. Jesus died so that I might have life. He suffered so that I could have a relationship with God, a relationship that God designed from the very beginning of time. This was Paul, so overwhelmed by God's grace. He loved to be able to tell people, and he got in trouble often for doing that. He would go anywhere. He would give up anything in order to share hope. And i got to be honest. It's pretty powerful and convicting to me. There are times I just seriously don't talk about this amazing gospel message. Because either I'm too busy or I'm too shy. Or I have an agenda. Or I just think they're the biggest creeps in the world and why would they respond to Jesus? And then I forget. I forget of how creepy I am. And how sinful I am. And that I don't deserve to be called a son. And that Jesus somehow loved me so that I could have abundant and eternal life. And I get overwhelmed by grace. Some of you have been praying for the silver birch derecho. This this storm that came in about three weeks ago. Some of your kids have been up at Silver Birch and literally had some time up there last week and recognized the decimation that had happened. You know, people have been praying and people have been asking and people have been, Rick, how are things up there? And we've given you updates and some of you are following. You've been praying and we're so grateful for that. But mostly my answer is, is this. Those are trees. Okay, some buildings are messed up. Nobody lost life, which is really cool. Thank you, Lord. But I'll tell you, when my brother told me they were sending the kids home after the storm, it hit me. And then the next week, couldn't open up camp again. And for 11 days, over 100 workers, bobcats, moving brush, moving things around, not to make camp look pretty, but that they could open. Because every week they were closed. 300 kids did not hear this gospel. They didn't have leaders living with them to show them good news, to help them make life-changing choices. (laughs) 
the majority of my time I spent last week. While I was up there, was going to staff person after staff person. And I said, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you worked really hard. I got to spend some time with some of the campers last week. They were overjoyed. Literally. They were, thank you, thank you. We don't care about the disaster. We are so grateful to be up here. I talked to leaders. The response was unbelievable last week. And the new set went up yesterday. And they're hearing the gospel. And their lives are being transformed. That is Paul's heart. He did not care about anything other than telling others, good news, you are dead, meet Jesus, he gives you life. You cannot invest in eternity. If you don't have Jesus, all you have is right here, this life. You better enjoy it. If you do have Jesus, you're going to spend eternity with your God and your Father. Paul traveled thousands of miles, endured countless obstacles, suffered physically so he might be able to get the gospel out. He stopped in Ephesus, as you heard just briefly, on his second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 19, he said this. On the second missionary journey, and Paul had three of them, they stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. There was a large population. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. And he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. I think Paul at this time saw how influential this was. I knew he had in his heart, I need to come back to this city. And in Acts chapter 19 and 20, we see that Paul literally did come back on his third missionary journey. He stayed about three years, the longest he spent anywhere. That's how influential this city was to him. In fact, I was reflecting, it's about the same time that I've been your pastor. Come November, it'll be three years. And I'm trying to relate and understand, okay, God, what kind of culture? Where are people responding? How are folks coming to faith? Where are their lives being transformed? How are they affecting this city? But God worked powerfully in Ephesus. Paul, the scriptures tell us, taught about the kingdom of God and did some amazing miracles. The name of Jesus was greatly honored and there was revival. And as a result, listen to this, the whole town of Ephesus, oh my word, Ephesus, Ephesus, the whole town of Ephesus changed. Can you imagine that? A church is started 
And Paul is faithfully teaching. And lives are so transformed that as they go out in the market, as they go back to their job, the kingdom of God is on their mouths. Their lives are being transformed. Imagine that. Acts chapter 19, verses 18, 19, and 20. It tells us this, that many who became believers at Ephesus confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery through incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Then there was a riot, and people were turning from Artemis worship. They were turning to Jesus. They were turning from worship of a fertility God, a sensual God, to a God that would give life. And everything began to change. The economics began to change. All those that made the Artemis uh, uh, idols... And all the different things that happened changed. The whole city was being transformed because of the message of grace. It had a powerful effect. Well, while the city was in an uproar, the mayor intervened and the crowd dissipated. Paul left that city in a little while, visited some other cities, but on his way back at the very end, of that third missionary journey, we find out in Acts chapter 20, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, he's got the Ephesian elders, the elders he's worked with for the three years, the elders who were the leaders of the church. He called them together, did not go back to the actual city, and said, I want to just pour my heart out to you. And he says this in Acts 20, starting in verse 18. When they arrived, the elders, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have one message for the Jews and the Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God, and having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is just, I can imagine the tears just falling at this time. He goes, this message is so different. It changed your town. It changed me. I had the privilege of just telling Repent of your sins. Don't go the way you're going. You will not find life. You will only find life in Jesus. This is the guy that wrote this letter to Ephesians, to the Ephesian church. It was written about 61 A.D., while Paul was in house arrest in Rome, he was waiting to hear from Caesar on what his future was going to be. He also, at this time, while he was in house arrest, wrote Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Well, if I were to summarize and put the whole letter kind of in a nutshell, I would say it this way. And it's important to kind of understand that as you kind of weave through this. But Paul wrote Ephesians with one basic message in mind. 
He said this, because believers have new life through Christ. That's the first three chapters. They ought to live a new life in the Spirit. You know, some of you have noticed the artwork. It's on the front of your bulletin. And the artwork basically is an outline of Chicagoland, or at least downtown Chicago. And the caption is, Graced to Grace. My hope and my prayer is that this life-transforming message, you understand who you are. You understand how much grace God has given you. You understand the amazing position that you have and I have, all because God chose to do it. We'll give you a message that will be able to be proclaimed. Your lives will be different. Your jobs will be different. Your homes will be different. I guarantee it. Not because of some preacher, but because God's Word changes us. The first three chapters of Ephesians emphasize doctrine. And I just want to say this. There might be one person in this whole congregation that would get goosebumps when I say it's about doctrine. There might be a few others, okay? But doctrine is critical. It's foundational for us to be able to live dynamic lives. And doctrine ought never be boring. Doctrine is life-giving, these truths. So we're going to dig into these first three chapters. And it's going to be foundational for when we get to four, five, and six. It's because of these first three that we can live unbelievably rich lives. The first half is theological. The second half is practical. This beautiful letter tells Christians of their great riches, inheritances, their fullness in Jesus and his church. It tells them what they can possess and how they can claim and enjoy all of God's gifts. Ephesians focuses on basic doctrine of the church what it is and how believers function within it. This truth about the church is revealed by Paul and called a mystery for a few different reasons which we'll get to eventually. The rich doctrine of the church is Christ's body is a metaphor that shows the church is not an organization, but it's a living organism made up of many interrelated and mutually dependent parts. You're going to see how beautiful the church is. You're going to love God's perspective. You see, the body functions through use of spiritual gifts, through the responsibilities of fellowship and mutual ministry. When the church is faithful, Christ comes to full stature in his present earthly body. When the church is not faithful, the world's view of Christ is distorted. The church is weakened, and the Lord is dishonored. All that is an introduction. If you would, turn your screens, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at two verses. Just the first two verses. You can read along with me if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul 
chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing, Paul says, to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul was chosen to be an apostle. He had a special job given to him by God. And if you're reading this and you recognize again that, wow, why is he even talking about his credentials? The people at Ephesus know what's going on. But remember, he was going to send this letter and send it out to different churches. But Paul starts off talking about his credentials. And the two things he talks about is this. I have been chosen and I'm an apostle. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, one of the unbelievable truths in the Scripture is that everyone who comes to Jesus by faith has been chosen. You have been predestined. You have been elected. But you also have free will. And you can choose. We're going to be talking as we enter into the book of Ephesians about, a well, quite a few antinomies, not paradoxes. Two things that seem absolutely impossible. You can't be chosen by God beforehand, and you can't have free choice. But the Bible says you can be chosen and have free choice. And so our faith in God is going to grow. But, but Paul wants everyone to know, hey, I've been chosen by God. God has chosen me and made me an apostle. And he says this, I'm writing to a holy people who are faithful followers. He actually is not writing to the whole church. He's writing to a specific smaller group in that church. First of all, um, Paul hammers home their position in Christ. And we're going to see this over and over again, especially in these first three chapters. But all believers are holy. All believers are saints. All believers, when they come to faith in Jesus, have a new nature, a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, a new reason to get up in the morning. We are set apart, and we don't belong to the world anymore. But one thing that's clear is not all believers, though, are faithful followers. Not all believers faithfully follow their leader, their king. And I know there's probably some resistance, but, oh, no, 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 I, I, I listen to God. I, well, I know one thing, is that as I listen to the Scriptures, and I read the Scriptures, one of the things I often ask myself as your pastor is, am I obeying this? Am I listening to you well God here. Because sometimes I think he asks us to do things that we don't really like. So not all believers are faithful followers, but he wrote to those who faithfully follow their leader, their king. What a great reputation. Wouldn't that be a great one to have here? Wouldn't that be a great one to have in your workplace? You know, I know much about Rick, but I know he really loves the Lord. He follows his king. He listens to him. He's a little bit crazy to me. What about our church? What about putting that on the tombstone? You know, 
I mean, some of us are not too far away. Wouldn't that be a great thing on the tombstone? Follower of the king. Wow. And that's who he's writing to. And then he says, may God grant you or give you grace and peace. You see, God is a source of grace and peace. Grace is undeserved favor. We've been saved by grace. Mercy's a little different. We're, mercy is something we're not given, something that we deserve. Grace is that we get something that we don't deserve. Peace is something, again, it's contentment that God promises us. Every believer in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who becomes part of God's family has this peace with God. The relationship has been restored. Well, we're going to stop there. I hope this has encouraged you. The background, the understanding of of where Paul is and what Paul is going to be talking about. But we're going to be digging in. At the end or the back of your bulletins, you'll see what our next text is. And I would encourage you. One of the highlights I've had as I begin preparing for this, I've literally read through Ephesians just about daily for the last three or four weeks, all in different versions all trying to hear what God is saying to me. And every time I put it down, I get a little bit more excited about who God is, what God is trying to do, and the privileges that I have. So we'll continue this letter next week. But I want to just ask you to do this. I would ask you to begin to pray that God would use this letter in your life, that he would transform your thinking that you and I and our leadership would be so connected with God that we would be able to change Fox Lake, Ingleside, or wherever we're at. Not that we do it in our own strength, but just because God has transformed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, dear Father, for your presence in our life. We don't understand often our circumstances or the situations, or the scenarios that we find ourselves. But God, we love you, and we trust you. We pray all these things in your son's amazing name. Amen.